spent my life down the wool pits. Down wool pits. Or explode something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right, cool. So we're functioning. Fuck. All right. So I've been listening to Old Gods of Appalachia. Appalachia. How's that going? Extremely well. I've been to the first season. When did I start listening to it? Yesterday afternoon. Yeah. Um, creepy as fuck. Hugely recommend. Uh, anybody who took my advice on the Magnus archives should probably also take this. Although, as I said to Joanna, it is a little more graphic with some of the horror, but it's got like a very prominent list of trigger warnings. So you'll be fine. As um, I said, graphic horror is fine as long as it's not spiders or being trapped underwater in a cave. So far, I've not come across any of those. Yeah. It's lots of the kind of shit we like. So it's got Easter eggs almost or foreshadowing bits. And you go, oh, I recognize that name from three episodes ago and they must be a descendant of or yeah, uh-huh. and you said it's got it's got gays uh yeah at least one pair so far yeah <laughs> good, good. sorry I, I just i'm trying to make sure i've got more gays in my media because of you see binge watching friends is not good for that no ag- aggressively heterosexual <laughs> oh, i'm in so much pain today oh. the yoga video i did yesterday was really core focused and then the one i did today was like a build-up to crow practice so really core focused but then on top of that, I made those bagels and it's um, a oh stiff God. dough that requires lots of kneading. So I was mm. kneading dough for like 15 minutes yesterday, which was like a really good workout, but now pain. But bread. So good for your hands. Very good for your wrists. Yeah, my elbow was hurting last night. Probably just fucked it from playing Valheim. How do you fuck up your elbow playing Valheim? Because I play on the sofa and I'm like leaning over to the coffee table. I think I'm just holding it weird. Oh yeah, no, that'll <laughs> also, do it. <laughs> girl game at uwu problem. Um, I had like quite long nails and I've been filing them nicely and I realized I was holding my hand really weird on the keyboard because I couldn't rest my fingers normally on the movement keys and things so I cut all my nails last night <laughs> I respect that that's devotion to the cause oh somebody on the local Facebook page posted a picture they took of a white deer somewhere in the one of the local forests oh and yeah I nearly commented don't follow it too far or you'll end up in the other realm and then I realized people I know, see that, and will think I'm just mad, not like referencing folklore. So, <laughs> yeah, especially in a local Facebook page, you yeah. might get burned at the stake as a witch for that. And I don't, um, I don't know how to get out of handcuffs and things. So, <laughs> ah, dear. Do we have any um, Pratchetty news? We do have Pratchetty news. Oh, we literally uh, along- do, don't we? Sorry, yeah, I was we like, actually- speculating wildly there, and we have proper news. Sorry, no, we have proper news. <laughs> Our lovely listeners may be aware that friend of the pod, Mark Burrows, is doing a one-man show based on his marvelous d- book, The Magic of Terry Pratchett, which he's taking up to Edinburgh. Mm. You might also be aware that he's doing some preview shows. Uh, but we won't be aware of yet because this is our first time announcing it. Is that on Ma- May nineteenth? May nineteenth. In the marvellous little town of Bury St Edmunds, the Barry true shall... Sorry. <laughs> I'm joining in. I don't know anything. <laughs> the true shall make you fret presents Mark Burroughs doing the magic of Terry Pratchett right here, right here in our little town. I can Live. see the font. There we go. I've got the flower in mind finally. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So Mark is going to come to our little town. He is going to do a preview show of this Edinburgh thing. Uh, we're going to be there around... Um, supporting and we're going to be doing a Q&A with the three of us afterwards mm-hmm. uh, so come, come and see yeah. us come along, come and come and to the Hunter Club the Hunter Club in Bury St Edmunds which is a nice little venue uh, at which Joanna has performed several times and I have spent a lot of time hanging around yes, 
It's also got quite a good pool table. I may have done an open mic there. I don't remember. We de- I've definitely done quite a lot of spoken word in that yeah. room. We don't have ticket links yet. Um, we will be posting those links and how you can get tickets and everything everywhere as soon as we can. Patrons, keep an eye out because you might get a cheeky little discount. Uh-huh. Oh. And then uh, if you're travelling to Bury and staying overnight, I'll take you all on a pub crawl on the Saturday. <laughs> Sorry, historical walking tour. <laughs> Not joining at the places that do coffee. <laughs> we will go places that do coffee for front soon. I'll tell you what, there aren't a lot of pubs that don't do coffee nowadays, but there are pubs where I feel bad asking for a coffee. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, right, what are we doing? Um, do you want to make a podcast? Yeah, let's make a podcast. Don't know why I got on my fucking notebook. <laughs> <laughs> You're about to interview me. Hello and welcome to The True Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, one a time in chronological order. I'm Joanna Egan. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part two of our discussion of the We Free Men. Hooray! They're we, they're free. Get over it. Um, <laughs> no on spoilers before we crack on. No we king, are... no quinn, no proper segue. Ah! <laughs> before we crack on, allow Francine to completely wreck her working space. And Before we crack on, a note on spoilers. This is a spoiler light podcast, obviously heavy spoilers for the book The We Free Men. However, we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld series, and we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Stepping, eyes closed, through a gap and some standing stones, because that's always a good idea. Yeah, definitely do that, listeners. We recommend <laughs> it. We cannot be held responsible for what happens afterwards, but bring a frying pan follow-up craig sent us an email with a lovely picture of the spring flowers coming up in his garden well done craig despite being further north than us <laughs> that was very kids tv voice well done <laughs> means- we'll put it on the fridge <laughs> the email has gone on the fridge that sounds like we're under attack the emails have reached the fridge <laughs> fucking internet of things <laughs> steve Sorry. on patreon uh, pointed out a couple, something we missed. Um, it's a nice little line as Tiffany stands on the hill looking for the school. She looks out beyond the field she knew. Strikes me as a nice nod to the King of Elfland's Daughter book I love, which I think we've talked about a bit on the podcast before. Laws and Ladies, I reckon. Probably. We'll talk about Laws and Ladies a fair bit today. Spoilers for the episode. Yes, there are some parallels. <laughs> some. One or two. Well, five or six. Um Steve also pointed out Tiffany describes what fairy ought to look like, an element I couldn't make sense of at all first time around. Toddlers in romper suits didn't click until it came around again. He added the qualifier with horns and the penny dropped Teletubbies. That's all I can think it could be. And I'm not sure if that was intended as a reference to Teletubbies, but like, (laughs) I I support it. I'm I'm thinking more like the flower fairies illustrations, but I don't know if they have horns. Well <laughs> the flower fairies did not have horns. Well, I poured over that book. As a, no, they, I poured over like those the books. Or something, like the little butterfly ones. Mate, they didn't have horns. All right. The distinct difference between antenna and horns. I don't know why I'm so determined to die on this fucking Yeah, hill. you are as fucking well, because Jack's been arguing with me all week about horns and antlers and fucking... There's a difference. <laughs> yes, there is, but we don't know what the triceratops were. <laughs> They weren't antlers, I know that, but people are arguing about whether they had a keratin sheath over the bony protrusion. <laughs> okay, I want to feel like I feel like I have not been arguing with you about <laughs> keratin sheaths over bony protrusions because well, it feels like something you might have done. 
I would have I, I would have got too stuck on dick jokes to argue about that. Whereas I think Teletubby horns look more like the giraffe ones, you know? And they are bone with just skin over pretty much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Technically they're antlers though. Are they? I don't know. I hate this subject. I'm very right. sorry. I'm Steve, this isn't your fault. <laughs> Thank you for your comments, Steve. You've ruined the friendship between Francine and I that has survived over a decade. Anyway. Imagine. <laughs> If we ever fall out, it will be something utterly ridiculous. It will be fucking antlers, won't it? Mm. On Twitter, we've had confirmation from Notto Vogons that we can, in fact, get vegetarian poutine in Quebec. Yes, thank, thank you. you for that. I'm going to post a link in the show notes to an amazing piece of artwork from Beverly, who realised our dreams of a, a gingerbread house on chicken feet. It's so good. <laughs> It's incredible. I was about to say a chicken house on gingerbread feet, which uh, no one mm. tried to draw. That sounds terrifying. Oh, I've been listening to too much cosmic horror not to see that as a very gory affair. Also on Twitter, Frau recommended, because uh, we were talking about dinosaur civilizations mm. a couple of weeks ago, uh, a book by Liu Tuxin. I'm hoping I said that right. I did watch the video of how to say it a couple of times, uh, of ants and dinosaurs, of which and uh, dinosaurs. Okay. Um, sounds amazing. Okay. Also, I remembered via doing lots of TV research this week, a short miniseries called Dinotopia, which was about humans and dinosaurs living in harmony that I was completely oh. obsessed with like 20 years ago. So okay. uh, I'm going to see if I can find that on YouTube or something. Okay, cool. Francine, would you like to tell us what happened previously on We Free Men? Certainly. Previously on We Free Men. Tiffany is a young girl with a talent for cheese and a brain for witching. She proves this by concussing a pond monster after a bit of crockery-based identification and persuades older witch Miss Tick that witches can grow on chalklands after all. Just as well, too, as the chalk is being besieged by fairy tale nasties. Luckily, young Tiffany's aided by her first sight, second thoughts and huge horde of violent pixies. She'll need all the help she can get because her little brother has gone missing and it looks like he's ended up at the source of all this trouble. <gasps> so, Joanna, do you want to tell us what happens this week? Yes, in this section, uh, chapter 5 through chapter 9, as we told you last week. In chapter 5, Tiffany flies on feagles through the downs to the site of Granny Aching Shepherd's Hut. Tiff finds a pouch of tobacco and Hamish drops in to tell her the Queen's ridden off with young Wentworth to the other world. Grimhounds attack and the world goes white, but Tiffany runs for the green and after a defeat, Rob Anybody explains some feagle philosophy. The Feagles take Tiffany to the mound and she learns they used to watch over the lambs for Granny. Tiffany remembers the China Shepherdess and the Gonagall plays as Tiffany enters the Kelder's cave. Chapter 7, the Kelder tells Tiffany that Wentworth is safe for a given value of safe in the Queen's own country. She asks Tiffany to take on Kelding for a while and do the thinking for the Feagles during the rescue. There's a thumb bargain and an exchange of sheep liniment, and Fion's not pleased. The Kelder passes, and William takes the time to explain protocol. Tiffany takes a breather, but not as big as medium-sized jock, but bigger than wee jock jocks there, to keep an well eye done. on her. <laughs> All the jocks in place. <laughs> yes, I wrote that out very carefully. Hamish takes a note back to the farm, and Tiffany accepts a proposal with a long engagement attached. Tiff heads for the stones, and after some searching, finds a place where time moves strangely. In Fairyland, the Gonagall wards off the dogs and the Feagles reveal they used to work for the Queen. Time moves differently here and Wentworth will suffer for it. Fear takes Tiffany and she wakes in a real world. Things melt when the Feagles arrive. She's faced down her first drone. They travel on through Fairyland until Gilded Wings attack. 
In chapter nine, not as big as medium-sized jock, but bigger than wee jock jock, saves the day with dreadful poetry, and dogs run by chasing a stag before a boy approaches on a white horse. Before Tiffany can introduce herself to Roland, a drone attacks and a masked bull's foot. Tiffany destroys the drone with decapitation, but the feagles are absent. Roland won't help, and there's dreams within dreams, and tame drones herd her into summer. Good stuff. It's good. Good section, this. I like this. It's a good book. It is. It's very, uh, there's a nice, you don't get it in most project books because again, this is more fairy tale than most, but just the, the whole, it's a journey. It's, li- it's a literal walking journey into fairyland. Yes, I enjoy That's that sort cool. of thing. Yeah. Cool. So, 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 we starting with any helicopters, any long class? Uh, Hamish's impressive landing spin as he descends Superb. from the buzzard on high is clearly a loincloth. No, it's a helicopter. And uh, for loincloths, I have decided that bull gowns are, in fact, very elaborate loincloths. I was thinking that the uh, the, the the suits on the little feagles, if you if you hadn't decided on one, I was going to suggest that one because they are anti loincloths. Surely, an anti loincloth <laughs> is just nudity. No. Okay. Sorry, in the same way, are... in the same way that lingerie isn't just like the opposite of nudity. A loincloth, I think, is there to enhance the loin. <laughs> Well, it's like how a fig leaf makes it more obvious that something's naked, you know? Right, yeah, obviously. A fig leaf is more obvious than a penis. It's more obvious that somebody was perverted about it. Yes, no, I know what you mean. I'm just being a dick. I know. Um, (laughs) She's crying with remorse. (laughs) You want me to go first? Yeah. Because I don't know where mine is. She stepped through and saw an astonishing sight. Green grass, blue sky becoming pink around the setting sun, a few little white clouds late for bed, and a general warm, honey-coloured look to everything. It was amazing that there could be a sight like this. The fact that Tiffany had seen it nearly every day of her life didn't make it any less fantastic. As a bonus, you didn't even have to look through any kind of stone arch to see it. You could see it by standing practically anywhere. My favourite little fucking (laughs) bluff and return of that section. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, how about you? What you got? They might be a hill or a tree or a stone or a turn in the road or they might be in a thought in your head, but they are there all around you. You'll have to learn to see them because you walk amongst them and don't know it. And some of them is poisonous. Ooh. It's just so nice and it's so ominous. And like, if you've read Lords and Ladies, you know more about these universes that are being warned off. But even if you don't, there's just such an incredible like mm. rhythm and poetry to it. Yeah. I mean, not just Lords and Ladies, right? The idea of a parasite universe goes all the way back to the first couple of books. Oh, yeah, is, uh, it does. The dungeon dimensions were described as parasites. Yes. Um, obviously, this is more comparable to Lords and Ladies, but it's a, it's an idea that Fratch is very into. Yes, and it's been around since the beginning. Characters, then. Should we start with Tiffany? Yeah, always a good idea. Our lovely protagonist. Um... Can I talk about her name quickly? Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot you are going to do that. Awesome. Uh, Well, there's two different bits about her name. Um, One, uh, the Tiffany problem, which in brief summary is I think a lot of us first possibly heard of from a Tumblr post, which is sort of a, it was actually a very common name in medieval times. um, But it sounds so modern that authors have trouble using it in those settings. Okay. So I don't. Um, I don't know if that's something that then like inspired Pratchett to use Tiffany in this book. Obviously, I'm not sure. Saying he saw the Tumblr post, but he may have been aware of 
the Tiffany problem. Um, it sounds like it's all a bit more complicated and detailed than that. Um, so I'm not going to go into it in a ton of detail, but CGP uh. Grey has a really good video <laughs> on it. You mean to say you're not going to try and replicate the 40-odd minutes of content CGP Grey came up with after weeks and weeks and weeks of research? <laughs> I'll also link to it, if you don't want to watch a 40-minute video, I'll link to a slightly shorter TikTok that did some similar research on it as well. I'm, I'm exaggerating. You should watch CGP Grey. You should. It's a very good video. Um, but also, so this book, um, the Kelder, I think, is the one that says... Tiffany's name sounds a lot like a phrase that in Fiegel means land under wave. Okay. So I was looking a bit more into that because I assume it's the way it's spelled out in here is a reference to um, Irish Gaelic. Okay. Uh, so Pratchett did say, and I can't remember if this was in annotated Pratchett or in on one of the alt.fan.pratchett things that I was uh, quite a lot of links down a rabbit hole by this point that a lot of the like fecal language stuff was implied as sort of Irish Gaelic in a bad Glaswegian accent and poorly spelled. Yeah, I've seen that too. It could be either, sorry. Uh- <laughs> so this land under wave thing though, the annotation in Annotated Pratchett is the last word of it, which is spelt T-H-O-I-N-N. It means nothing. The last word is meaningless, but there is something called, and I have been trying to find the pronunciation, but something like Tirifuinatine, which is how it should be pronounced, that does translate to something like land under wave. Yeah. And I say to Pratchett went on to say that this was actually part of an Irish Gaelic le- legend, sort of an Irish Atlantis. There's actually been a few different discussions about that land under wave translation and how it meant. Uh, it sounds like... Did the- I not come across that during my research the other week? Well, so I couldn't find anything that... Ref- I did find a disappearing Irish island that has a lot of folklore going back um, called He Brasil, mm-hmm. uh, spelled H Y. Dash B R A S I L. I couldn't find anything that refers to it as the Tirfuina Tine. Okay. Um, and again, really sorry to Gaelic listeners that I'm probably butchering all of this pronunciation. I tried. Um, so, yeah, so I'm not sure how accurate that annotated Pratchett annotation is, because um, it also sounds like Toen does have some Gaelic translation, but it may also translate as arse, depending on how it's spelt. Um, <laughs> and also the Fwa. Uh, the fui, which is spelled F-A-R, could mean over or under. Oh, I thought you were going on about like the drone language then. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> not the fwa, fwa, fwa. <laughs> anyway, so I'm going to link to uh, a longer article about uh, He Brazil, this disappearing Irish Atlantis cool. island. Uh, oh, actually, yes. if it didn't come back again, that's probably why it didn't pop up in my research, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, because uh, so you going just did to the... A- the uh, up and down ones. <laughs> anyway, yes, yeah, so that was interesting. Mm, sorry, yes, things. that is interesting. Love that. <laughs> Back to the book itself. Sure. The Shepherdess, I expect you've noted down, I thought it was very cool because I came across some stuff that Pratchett had said about that particularly, again, on, on the groups. And there was a bit of discussion because in the book, obviously, the it's all from Tiffany's point of view. And Tiffany feels guilt about how she thinks Granny Aching took this gift. Yeah. Oh, there was a discussion on one of the, the fan groups. One commenter said it was an important lesson for Tiffany to realize how silly insulting even the thing was to her grand and that keeping it valuing it. Nonetheless, Tiff saw how much the grand valued her, have a grand valued her. Someone replied, no, that's what Tiffany thought, Granny Aching thought. But the impression I got was that Granny Aching hadn't seen it as an insult at all. And then there's quite a long explanation there. And then Pratchett himself replies, 
that's what I thought I was writing. Although I was granny aching, you never know. But it seemed to me that the life of the achings and granny most of all was without anything that wasn't necessary. And so the little statue probably spoke to the Sarah Grizzle that had painted the flowers in the flowers of the chalk. I think it fascinated her. Above all, though, it was a well-meant present from a favourite grandchild. And how could that be an insult? Oh, that's really lovely. So it's nice to see it as like Tiffany obsessing over this in because Not- granny aching never expressed it normally to her. But yeah. I really love the shepherdess moment and and I like the way Tiffany dwells on her guilt about it because it's a very like thing for someone of her age to do. Yeah, absolutely. To overthink this action, especially because it was an action, you know, she didn't often get to give a gift to someone because yeah. they live that life. Like you said, they don't have Yeah, when do you to go to the market? And, yeah. Yeah. Something else I noticed and the the whole relationship of the shepherdess to Granny Aching's appearance mm. really relates to Tiffany's sort of well, I can't be one of the princesses. I've got brown hair and brown oh, eyes yeah. and I'll be a witch. And I think it's going to, uh, from what I know of Tiffany's arc as it grows through the books, I think we're going to see her sort of dealing with an expectation versus like a China mm-hmm. Shepherdess version of herself quite a few times. You've read a lot more like Victorian era stuff than I have. And I'm guessing that's where this depiction of a, like a Shepherdess came from, the kind of Victorian romanticisation of the countryside. Yeah, um, there's a lot of Victorian romanticization of this this sort of this pastoral stuff. Okay, so it's like a the Victorian Arcadia, basically. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. And Bo, this is Bo Peep, isn't it? It's very much Bo Peep. <laughs> the, the outfit described is very Victorian. Right. Um, wow, I just particular... managed to through coffee. That was quite interesting. <laughs> that is impressive. <laughs> Finally, I'm evolving. <laughs> Obviously, the way Victorians romanticise pastoral stuff is very different than the slightly later bodice-ripping romanticising pastoral stuff by way of handsome stable hands. Well, I don't know. I bet the Victorians did as well, just less so. <laughs> I know. There was definitely some fandom of handsome stable hands in Victorian times. <laughs> Absolutely. But yes, Tiffany, in this yeah, section. <laughs> yeah, no, she's... Uh, I, I, it's bad, isn't it? But I quite enjoyed her being told off. Like I was William. about to say, yeah. <laughs> because I just I, it hadn't occurred to her. And you combine it with the slightly earlier when she's deciding what she's got to do. And so she does this, all right, who knows the way to fairyland? And Rob's surprised she doesn't know the way. And she's sort of like, oh, well, I was expecting, a, oh, you can't do that. You're just a young girl. But they're acting like she's perfectly capable and she was hoping for a bit more. Yeah. I guess almost thinking that she's not capable so she can prove it. Yeah. And then she almost kind of overcorrects with the, yeah, so I'm very capable and not asking nicely and... Having to be slightly scolded for... Yeah. And the Feagles are kind of, they are giving her guidance, but gently, like, like, I don't know, like Mother Bird or something. (laughs) And she does eventually admit her frustration when she's trying to find, like, the actual way into Fairyland. Mm. And she ends up... um, eventually reading from the Diseases of the Sheep book while she spots the sweets on the floor. Perfect. Yes, the character development in this section is very apparent. And it's nice that she takes it on board, not immediately and not perfectly, but instead of doing what I can imagine myself doing at that age, which is crying when I got called out. Yeah. And not, not like petulantly, but just as a, I cried when I got embarrassed. She's like, okay, right. And we get a little flashback to how like capable she was when she found Granny Aching, and oh yeah, that was all a adds moment. to the likability and the general witchness. I also really love the moment where she's uh, in the mound with the Feagles, and she has to take the toad out and quite ask, "Am I fashing myself?" 
It'd be terrible if I could, if everyone could see I was fashing and I didn't know. Yeah. (laughs) The bit um, where she's, where she does get emotional properly is when she realises that she'd been wrong about, not even, I'm not sure she thought it solidly, but the kind of wisp of an idea that Granny Aching had been coming and picking up the tobacco and was still walking the hills and it turned out it was the Feagles. Yeah, and then she realises that that she's almost, she's been silly. Yeah, and she works through it pretty quickly and manages to relieve the Feagles of their sudden terrible guilt. But <laughs> it's good that she sort of gets those moments of grief within it because, you know, mm. when you've lost someone, you don't ju- just deal with it and move on. Obviously, you get the then flashes of it and remembering new things that give you another little moment of grief. And I think it's a really realistic portrayal. It's really well done. Yeah. And that bit in particular was another little loss, wasn't it? It was a this bit of granny she sort of thought she had left that she realised yeah. that she did in a completely different way. Yeah, that's it. I think she was also kind of realising it's more ripples in the world again, isn't it? It's yeah, and this tradition's now being carried on by these people, these little people who are alive and, and they give remember her, her and and that gives her her own role to carry on in traditions mm. as well. Yeah, well then, Tiff, good Tiff. I also love, uh, we get like more of an explanation of the first sight, second thoughts thing, mm. but then she finds herself having third thoughts and gets the horrible sort of, can we all stop thinking so much? It's getting very loud in here. It's quite a small head. Yeah. There are parts of this book where they're describing Tiffany, like watching herself being scared. I'm like, sounds like disassociation, mate. Uh- <laughs> yeah, that bit was relatable. <laughs> gets the three things. I think that if any time to disassociate, it's then. Yep, Absolutely. Right, uh, the Feagles. Feagles, yay. We learn a bit more about their philosophy. The the whole doesn't really matter if people die because they're just going back to the land of living for a bit thing. Yeah, and they'll be back, which is, that's a nice way to think about things, I suppose. Yeah. It's sad, but only in a like, oh, they've had to go to boring land for a bit. <laughs> I really like it. It's just giving a very different flavour of philosophy to some new characters as well. Mm. Um, especially because this is a book aimed at younger readers. And so when you do have these casual deaths, like obviously there's the way that Amazing Morris handled it, but I think it's kind of nice to go, all right, we've got a giant army of these, so it it might have to be a bit NPC-ish around the ears, so here's a way we can kind of make that acceptable to them emotionally. Yes. And then it's kind of when we see them reacting to the Kelder, that's a different thing entirely. Yeah. Perhaps. It gives that a lot more weight. Yeah. In that, I suppose perhaps even if you believe they've just gone to another place, it's having a belief in something isn't always enough to overcome just the immediate grief. Emotional of something. reaction yeah, yeah, yeah. to something, yeah. Yeah. And I think on top of that, it's different with the Kelder, you know, they're they're mourning their mother and she's the, yeah. the mother and the matriarch of all of them. Yeah. And it's their protection and their stability and Yeah. Um and then so we meet William the Gonagall. Yay. I'm going to go straight from Annotated Pratchett here because they like how they explain the reference. A reference to William Topaz McGonagall, Scotland's worst poet. He was to rhyme and meter what B.S. Johnson was to bricks and mortar. Mm-hmm. He got that middle name, by the way, as a prank. Somebody awarded it to him in a fake letter of commendation and he took it seriously and took the title. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, there are, I think, I think... 
I got most of the stuff I know about him from a No Such Thing as a Fish episode. So if I remember that, I'll link to it because obviously that's a very funny way to learn about it as well. Yes. Uh, I have got an extract from uh, one of his his famous poem, The Tay Bridge Disaster. My favourite poem of all time, I'll hear no slander. Thank you. I I said it was famous. I know. I'm just warning everybody else. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful railway bridge of the Silvery Tay. Alas, I am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. I think you picked the wrong extract. So hold on, sorry, I'm going to be a dick. <laughs> I'm going to add nope. to it because, because, Joanna, how could you miss out the bit about the girders? I must now conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly without the least dismay that your central girders would not have given way, at least many sensible men do say, had they been supported on each side with buttresses, at least many sensible men confesses, for the stronger we our houses do build, the less chance we have of being killed. And that's the Incredible. moral to the story. <laughs> Buttresses, girders, <laughs> amazing you know, meter. I love it. I fucking love that poem. <laughs> there's just not enough buttresses and girders in modern day poetry. No, and I'm trying to remember. I know I've read that out on the podcast before, and I don't know when. <laughs> I don't think you needed a reason. I may have edited it out, listeners. If you remember me reading that for whatever stupid reason, please tell me. <laughs> we need to stop doing callbacks to earlier episodes because I don't remember them. Well, no, because you're one and done, aren't you? I have to spend fucking hours editing the bastards. Oh, yeah. Well, I listen back to it. Yeah, it's not the same. <laughs> no, I, no it's, it's absolutely not. I understand why they're burned in your brain a lot more than mine. Anyway, we've got the Kelder and her daughter, Fionn. Yeah, a bit of a uh, tension there. I have to say the tension between Fionn and Tiffany, like, obviously it absolutely works plot-wise and it's nice to have that kind of scowling voice in the background rather than just all the feagles automatically think Tiffany's great but there's a bit of it that's sort of like ah we've got two younger women of around the same age of age being very relative in the feagal sense mm. so let's do it they're obviously not going to like each other yeah <laughs> and in this case makes sense there's a power struggle thing going on but yeah still like oh, come on. but they'll, they um they come around to it later so they do come around to it, yeah. But also we've got this whole only one or two women at once and the Kelder blatantly says, you know, there's a reason there's only one queen in the hive. Mm -hmm. So we have this big bee parallel, which was a huge thematic thing in Lords and Ladies. Bees. Slash stab. Slash stab. <laughs> yes, I, I understand why they didn't go into that bit here. But not that he's been completely without little scary bits, but there's no need to know about the slash stab in the hives. <laughs> well, I'm assuming there's not going to be much slash stab between Fionn and either the original Kelder or Tiffany. No, there'll be some politics. Maybe it's some. interesting to like speculate what Fionn wants to happen here and whether she does have a clear path or not. Because somebody said, like, you could bring in a warrior and marry there. And, and obviously that wouldn't work for a multitude of reasons. And I think, I don't know, maybe she just doesn't want things to change. And so that's the... Yeah, I feel like it comes from like a sort of adolescent fear of change. Because mm. it's not just change, it's she's got to go off on her own. Yeah, she gets to go with a and few of her brothers she... and go somewhere completely new. Where she doesn't know anyone. Yeah, and that's scary. It was quite sweet. I'm sorry, backtracking very slightly. William the Gonagall, I thought, was very sweet in that way. I thought that was a nice moment of, yeah, but good insight. Yep, I'm on my own. Um, I'm going to go back to the Highlands now, which actually was nice. Parallel, well, not parallel, but made sense because Pratchett's obviously written his accent to be a bit more Highland, or maybe not Highland, but like Burr. Do you know what I mean? Very different from the um, Feagles. Yeah, the Feagles are sort of sure, generally more. <laughs> 
Glaswegian-ish, and I'd say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. More, gen- more gentle rolling R kind of Scottish yes. accent. Yeah. Uh, obviously what I would I associate am, with poetry. <laughs> I am doing all of these quotes in my best Scottish brogue. You just can't tell because it sounds like my normal voice. This is like the best Scottish brogue I can yeah. do. <laughs> so yeah, so I like that as one of the like more really distinct um, Lords and Ladies parallels. Yeah. And it's we also learn through like um, tangentially that Fiegels live as long as people almost mm-hmm. because the Kelda 60 something, isn't she? And yeah. saw Granny Aching as a peer and hung out with Afraidus, which is lovely to know as well. And yeah, I don't know. I really like the Calder as a character. Obviously, she has to leave quite quickly, but she does have a touch of the fantasy trope where the person gives you like the most cryptic fucking hints about the really important time-sensitive mission you're about to go on. And then dies immediately. (laughs) Big Dumbledore vibes on that one. I think we're allowed to have these tropes in Pratchett, though. Oh, yeah, no, I fucking like it. Don't, be, don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. <laughs> but it is definitely a tropey thing. It's a, this this in particular, well, not, not necessarily more so than other books, but this is one of the books that's obviously very much meant to encapsulate all of the fairy tale yes. tropes. So. And yeah, like sort of fantasy nice journey tropes as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, oh, and then Granny Aching. Mm-hmm. Yes as we keep tangentially referencing. <laughs> so yeah, we see more of the end of her life here. We see the funeral before we see her actual passing away. Mm. It's all been really fun to read like the month after my grandmother died. But yeah, we see the hut and the lifting the turf and putting it back, putting the, what is it? They put the sort of part of the sheep's wool, a tuft of raw wool on yeah, her when they bury her. her. Yeah, to show, um, to show whichever gods were up there that... That's why she hadn't been to worship or whatever. And I like yeah. the little detail that Granny Aching's like, wouldn't have had any truck with any gods who didn't understand that anyway. Don't you know yeah. the lambing needs doing? But, you know, just in case we'll pin that on her. And I like the end it gives for Thunderbolt and Lightning as well, who just sort mm. of trot away over the fields when it's all done. Yeah, you do. Can I mention? Had um, I really liked the parallel they had to the Grimhounds. Because they described in detail how um, the Grimhounds were kind of surrounding Tiffany and she there was always one she couldn't see. Yeah. And then when we got to the bit where Granny Aching was confronting the guy thrashing his donkey. Yeah. Um, there was a bit where they described how Thunder and Lightning surrounded him and there was always one he couldn't see. And that was a and they like had eyes like balls of steel. And I think we're looking at a kind of Granny Aching, Queen of the Fairies parallel like mirror thing here, very slightly. Well, this is the whole thing. The reason that the Queen of the Fairies can now start encroaching on the chalk is because Granny Aching has gone. So now there is room for a different queen to come in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think at the same time, we're learning how powerful the Queen of Fairies is. We're kind of getting these little hints that Granny Aching was her equal. In her own quiet way. Yes, her equal. Or if not, her superior, I would say. And with the there always being one you can see, the same thing then happens with Tiffany and the drones towards the end of the section where she realises she's being herded, that there are some around and then there's oh, yeah. always one. Yeah. <laughs> parallels within parallels. Can't have two queens slash staff, whatever. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love the little details of all the things that are named after Granny Aching as well. The um, oh. buzzards are Granny Aching's chickens mm. and the clouds are Granny's little lambs. And yeah. her father called the thunder Granny Aching cussing. And makes you wonder, like, in five generations, what that would have evolved into. Granny's lambs could obviously stay as is, but you can imagine some of the aching changing into a slightly different word. Or, or like, the buzzers just become known as little chickens. <laughs> you end up with some really weird nicknames for things. And the etymologist can just be like, 
referencing something we don't know about. Sorry. Yeah, they didn't write it down, the bastards. (laughs) And then late in the section when we read the bit where Tiffany finds Granny and finds that she's passed away, Mm. the way the grief in the silence is written is incredible. Mm. Just the detachment again. But also the way, yeah, Tiffany understands what's happened and so then she feeds the dogs and and she goes and she tidies up the shed and she goes home and she tells them what's happened yeah. um but if you contrast that to because esk is a very tiffany-ish character yeah. and you contrast that to when esk finds granny weatherwax in equal rights and thinks she's died mm. runs home <laughs> she never had granny aching to grow up with did she she got her um mentor a lot later yeah although then got to keep her a lot longer Absolutely. But it's just, I don't know, there's something really beautiful about the way this is really silently and quietly and cleverly written, but I really Mm. enjoy that there is that parallel there of how that is coped with. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of way. There's a lot of things about how Tiffany's coping with emotions that I think would be very very useful for kids to read, actually, and and it's cool to read now, just like like her just being fucking annoyed in the fairyland. She's she's scared and therefore she's just fucking and now annoyed with it. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Everything around me is being very silly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that works. Yep. Uh, then we have the jolly sailor of the tobacco fame. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and this beautiful description of the packet, and it's the only sea that Tiffany's ever seen, and Granny Aching tells her the story of the whale that he's chasing around the disc, which mm-hmm. I really like, that this sort of flat version of Moby Dick that yeah. we've got going. <laughs> The whale's called Mopey. It's also also some very good foreshadowing for the next section. There's Mm. a nice setup here that's going to get paid off a few chapters down the line. Yes. Yes. Um, And I think this probably is mentioned in the next section as well, but I like the kind of childlike vision of having only seen this picture, that's what the sea looks like, and it's just a small place. And like when she sees another picture of the guys, of the men clinging to the raft, she's like, I couldn't even see the lighthouse in that one. Yeah, like that's the, not what the, the light looks like. <laughs> Which, by the way, I tried to find out what painting that was, if any, because it just it seems very unusual for Pratchett not to reference one. And there is like a famous what was it? Oh, Raft of the Medusa, which is my only guess. But it mm-hmm. seems it's pretty fucking dramatic to be just hanging up in a random country person's house. So I did used to have a thing when I was a kid. Like the main time we went to the seaside was when we went up north to visit my grandparents because <laughs> they lived at Whitley Bay, so they were right by the coast. So we know we were getting close because there was a certain hill you go over, you see the sea in the distance if you know how to yeah. spot the very sad grey North Sea against a very sad grey English sky. It's a talent. <laughs> but there's a really beautiful little sort of house on a little isolated hill around that area and there's a painting of it that my mum had on the wall. So to me, like, it doesn't look like the sea unless that house is there. It was very, it's yeah. not the sea unless... The, like, I knew objectively that not every seaside you went to, that house was there, but it didn't feel like a proper seaside unless I could see that house. Totally, yeah. Having spent a lot of childhood in Jersey, I definitely still even now go to another beach. I'm like, I mean, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's not Jersey. Doesn't seem quite right, though. Uh... <laughs> Do you feel a bit like you're cheating on the island? Yeah. There. Anyway... Uh, we meet Roland, the Baron's missing son, uh, it turns out, is bimbling about in fairyland. <laughs> Riding up on a white horse, which uh, I'm assuming you remember, because I talked about it in great detail, the Ballad mm-hmm. of Tam Lin, which we talked about in Lords and Ladies. And it was that's a while of, ago, though, so if you want to re-talk about any of it, please do. 
Uh, it's a story of a woman whose lover gets taken by the Queen of Fairies, and there's various different versions of how she's got to go and get her lover back. But one of the common threads in the various tellings of Tamlin is that he, Tam is put on a white horse, and that's how she knows which yeah. horse has him on. And the Queen of Fairies rides a black horse, which I think is why the Queen of Fairies in this is described as riding a black horse. Oh, very cool. Is um because because you actually read the ballad in depth. To you, does this seem like a kind of inversion of some of the themes within? So Tiffany's going back to go and get not her lover at all. She's going to get a brother, but while she's there, she might as well get the fucking prince back, I guess. And the <laughs> yes, it's it's a very it's doing what Pratchett does well, yeah. which is the flipping the story tropes on their head a little bit. And mm-hmm. this is a nice, fine, I'll do it <laughs> version of Chamlin. Yeah, because that's the thing to do. Yes. That's the right thing to do, even though I don't like the Baron that much. And even though this guy's obviously a bit of a prick, she she learned her duty from Granny, didn't she? So Yeah. I'm going to go and find oh, the version that's... of it that I listened to like on repeat because I sang a version of it for patrons. Yeah. Also, the kind the whole bit about like this is the stuff that has to be done. Yeah. Tiffany there. I'm trying to sit I'm trying to think of which of the witches' books before now that was the most underlined in just like the duty of being a witch and it's not coming to me right now but it might have been equal rights i think i would of. say i was thinking witches abroad when mm. um granny has to put the wolf out of its misery oh yeah actually it's probably been a theme in all of them hasn't it but that might you might be right that might be the one that's yeah i'll see if i can i should actually have done it this section i'll do it next section find some parallel paragraphs from other practice. Yes. <laughs> oh, I can never fucking alliterate with peas. <laughs> Parallel Pratchett paragraphs. Thank you. Paul the Apostle. No. Um, and then we meet drones, which is such a sinister, terrifying mm. concept. Yeah, isn't it? Ugh. I did have a quick look and I couldn't find any obvious parallels. I think this is Pratchett's horrible invention. Well done, Pratchett, for the <laughs> horrific horror. <laughs> I do want to point out the the secondary and the masked ball that Tiffany goes into. I'm assuming oh, yeah. this is very much a reference to the labyrinth. Oh, yeah. Because it's like an infamous scene, which is a story about a girl going to the land of the goblins to rescue her brother from the her little brother who she hates from the Goblin King. And there's no way that Pratchett didn't like the labyrinth. And we'll know it's Henson's and David Bowie. Yeah, absolutely. In very tight trousers. Oh, we should rewatch that. I we said should. that at the same time you said very tight trousers. But I'm not going <laughs> to lie, that, that does work. Uh, yeah, no. uh, he's not a fan of Bowie and very tight trousers. I'm also really so glad that you... I know you sometimes catch me trying to spell things live in the shared episode plan, so you weren't in it, but I still didn't try and put Labyrinth in there. I only put it in my notes so you didn't see me trying to spell it. Ooh. I'm not sure I could do it first go, so there you go. <laughs> I'll tell it's you what, word. it's been fucking me up this week, the word parallel. I knew how to spell it before, but I keep trying to do it with a double R this week. <laughs> Too many R's, too many L's. Yeah, no, yeah. parallels are tr- a tricky one. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, no. So the Mars Ball Dream, I'm, I must be a labyrinth reference. Mm. The whole dream. Actually, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, aren't I? Because we need to be uh, locations. But yeah, the drones very cool. I like the the bit where the four drones. I know it's right at the end. Are sitting in like the the quadrant and kind of projecting this screen on. I know we'll see that a bit more later. But it seems very. That's almost a little sci-fi moment, isn't it? You can see yeah. in some mad scientist lab the four energy sources projecting this, whatever it is. Oh yeah, that's that's why it comes up for me. Um, 
But I like that as a visual. Fucky, fucky characters, those. What do you think? What kind of clues do you think you're trying to give yourself? Like if you were in one of these dreams? Oh, I feel like it'd probably be me doing something competently. It'd be like all the, all the laundry's done. Or something. It would be like if this room felt organized, this table yeah. has never felt organized. Or all the books were in order or something like that. Or, or it's like, oh, I don't know. It, it, I guess maybe if Jack said something a certain way or successfully completing a sewing project rather than half finishing it and leaving the fabric around to judge me <laughs> I'm in my sewing room so I'm, that's that's my main focus oh. also what food do you think they would try and tempt you with I know that but like if we weren't as clever as Tiffany and try to imagine them oh it would be pasta yeah. I, 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 no, I'm like very... just randomly eating it off the counter Probably biscuits. I I really like food. It Mm. wouldn't take a lot. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Snacking is fun. Mini chatter, something like that. Whatever. (laughs) Well, the problem is, is that it would also be very realistic if they're trying to sort of recreate my world with a dream that there'd be a loaf of bread, probably freshly baked around somewhere, Mm. because I like to make bread once a week. As I freshly baked bread, if there's some butter near it, Mm. yeah, actually, yeah, that's a good one. That would be it, definitely. You can't resist a slice of bread with butter on it. No. No, nice never. Dish, I'm yeah. never going to try. No. What the fuck would even be the point? You stay in fairyland, whatever. You keep your humanity, at least. Um, yeah. What was I saying? Fuck. Oh, yeah. The whole um, being tempted by food, by fairies, by spirits. That also came up in the Old Gods of Baptist by the way. But um, if you do the rabbit hole for the patrons this month on like fairy tale rules. Oh, yeah. That's definitely yeah, one okay, I want to cool, talk cool, about. Cool. I want to hear more about that. Nice. <laughs> I'm just putting in my request for Joanna doing research for me. <laughs> All right, so we've got a year and a day. We've got food. We got <laughs> rule of three. That won't take me long to research. Oh Jesus Christ! No, Sorry, fun. listeners. We're literally now live planning our bonus content on yep. the podcast rather than talking about what we're meant to be fucking talking about the chalk. Chalks. Uh, I've got brackets. No, I'm not just smuggling in extra quotes. So, what would you like to read, Joanna? Okay, so there's this great line right at the beginning of the section. <laughs> this is the girl flying. At the moment, there's a toad on her head, holding onto her hair. Pull back and here is the long green whale back of the downs. Now she's a pale blue dot against the endless endless grass mowed by the sheep to the length of a carpet. But the green sea isn't unbroken. Here and there, humans have been. Which is really cool because we had that thing last week, uh, or in the last section, where um, Miss Tick was watching Tiffany and we had that pulling back. Yeah. And looking over the downs. So we get a repeat of it here. Yes. I love I I love those bits anyway, those bits of description. I think I must have been subconsciously pulling from that a while ago because I wrote something that I never tidied up and published, but about walking through Suffolk like that and just imagining what it would look like as an aerial view, you know, me with a little dog running next to me, scaring crows up into big clusters and yeah, Oh yeah. I'll try and dig that out. Um but yeah, I I love that. I love the fucking pull up. Uh, descriptions I think that's yes. very clever of him it is one of my favourite things he does and then just the next pl- page we get the actual uh, golly gee of the chalk the flints and the standing stones and colkins and uh, the, the decorative very twisted looking flints that people put on their garden walls yeah um, um, I've never seen those used as decorations but they're definitely dotted around here as well yeah flint flint babies did they call them or something like that they've got lots of weird little names yeah coolkins which means chalk children chalk children oh nice and it talks about the carvings in the chalk as well which is something you know we talked about we'll talk about the Uffington white horse some more and we talked about the um 
Oh, I can't remember what it's called, but the man with the big penis that's carved <laughs> that into chalk giant. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going to carve a giant, you know, you're not going to give him a small penis. <laughs> dick man. Anyway, right. No, I'm being a, I'm being a dick. Um, and it also references trilithons. Yeah. Which Standing is spe- stones. Yes, specifically two upright with one across the top, like you see at oh. Stonehenge. Oh, try, try. Okay, yes. Yes. Good. I like that. There's a lot of Celtic imagery that is like obsessed with threes because the rule of three is fucking everywhere, obviously. Yep. Uh, but like triptych symbology that I was looking into because when I was drawing that, the hair, the three hair thing, I was trying to find yeah. a design I wanted to put in the background for that. So that's cool. Love that. Yes. Um, and obviously, again, we've got with that another parallel to Lords and Ladies where they're dealing with the stone circle, although we don't need, seem to have magnetism here. No. But it's a similar sort of stones potentially guarding gateways and what have you. We definitely don't because she brought the pan through. Yeah, she managed to get the frying pan through. She wouldn't be able to do that if it was magnetic. Yeah. Which maybe, you know, uh, the queen hasn't managed to exert enough influence on the stones to make them magnetic and therefore keep iron out. I can't remember if that's how the magnetism worked in. I thought it just kept them in because they don't like the magnetism because it, it disrupted their senses. Oh, it might be that, yeah. It might have been an under, unintended side effect that people therefore couldn't come in with them with the iron. Yes, but I think, yeah, I think it was like because they used electromagnetic sensors to get around, right? Something and so like the that. magnet fucked them up. Yes, yeah. Anyway, I, I should go back and I don't have time to go back and read Lords and Ladies, but <laughs> L- listeners, correct us. <laughs> Please do correct us if we're wrong, which we are. <sighs> I mean, I'm not. I'm pretty sure I'm right on that one. Actually, that's fine. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're right too. I'm not. This isn't a hill. I'm going to die on. Speaking of hills, the mound. Yes, nice. <laughs> I was like, I knew you cheese chose that phrasing. <laughs> um. So yes, the Feagles live in one of these mysterious burial grounds, uh, burial mounds, mm-hmm. um, which are a thing over here. We talked about the uh, famous man-made Neolithic mound last week. Yes, I found actually in that very old folklore journal I sent you the thing about the uh, fucking sundials in. Yeah. Um, I, there's a little bit in, oh, might have been a slightly later edition, about the various folklore around that hill that you mentioned. Oh, cool. What's that hill called? Not Dragon Hill, the other one. It's not Arkham Hill. I'd have to grab yeah, the yeah. plan from last week. But yes. The hill I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, I like that the Feagles uh, acknowledge, like, oh, yeah, there's a dead king in the other room, but he doesn't bother us. <laughs> yeah, he's fine. <laughs> he's fine. We leave him alone. He leaves us alone. The Kelder's surrounded by these, like, piles and piles of gold. Yeah. And the um, the Kelder's are buried with the king, I guess, or very close to. And to me, I think it makes sense that the Feagles have these thousands of year old relationships with the rulers of the land, possibly not with the Baron. But mm. I mean, they rekindled the one in Lanka. Yes. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they and the old king had made an agreement that they could marry together these. or whatever. Or then again, I wouldn't be at all surprised if they just found a friendly looking mound and made the home there. Yeah. Oh, because they took Verence to the mound they were living in in um, Carpe Joculum. Oh, that's right. They were living there already, were they? I don't know if it's the same mound. Or they mound. wanted to or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They might have had like an island mound. They may not be all the same feagles, but I think there is some overlap. I mean, it's not the same as this one, obviously, because they're up in the mountains. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. But they're, oh, maybe William McGonagall came from them. Yeah, there could be some family overlap. Anyway, sorry. Uh, and then obviously we go into Fairyland for the first time. We have the incursion of the country into Tiffany's world, which is 
was really cool to reread and write about yesterday because it was like snowing here yesterday, but it yeah, was a weird mix of like snow briefly, and then it's green again. And a really weird temporary snow as well. So that must have been a cool kind of read because it was, it started snowing at like nine o'clock. I went out for a walk at about 10 when it was like really heavy snow and settling everywhere. By the time I got back, the garden was all white. I looked out again and before lunchtime it was gone. But then it kept snowing. Yeah, it didn't settle like again. tiny little flurries, yeah, yeah. but yeah, it didn't <laughs> settle again. Yeah, it was a very weird day of snow yesterday, so that's it was the, quite cool reading yeah. the incursions. Yeah, oh no, wait. <laughs> but also that you have these details, like Tiffany realises the trees are filling themselves in when you get closer to them. Very video game, isn't it? Well, but it also it frustrates her, it makes it hard to look at. And I was yeah. thinking there's a nice parallel to um, Hogfather, the children's <laughs> painting that they're in. Yeah. I think she re- refers to the trees as a children's drawing at some point. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For for me, it's. I reckon he's definitely thinking of walking through one of the older games where the rendering is. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. really so, and it starts kicking in. Yeah, it is my bugbear and Valheim. I understand why my like base and shit doesn't start rendering till I sound near it, but it's really annoying that I almost sail past the dock because the fucking bonfires don't light up until I'm close yeah, enough. Definitely, I think awesome. enough people have complained about that. They might patch it at some point, but like, I think so. The distance on it. I don't know if that's how video games work. Anyway. Um, oh, and we also, as when they're talking about um, like the Fiegel's history with the Queen and mm. what Fairyland used to be like, we get a reference to the King that she had the argument with. Is this is this the same King and Queen? Yeah. Okay. Good. From Lords and Ladies. Yeah. 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 100%. So it's, it's the same tale being told a different way. So I am going to, in that case, look up the Nanny Og's telling of this story with the whole there was an argument between the King and the Queen. Yes. And uh, yeah, because. And words were had, but they were magic words and mountains. That's forest destroyed, mountains exploding, a few hundred deaths, that kind of thing. That kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know how it goes. Um, but I like that we have more of the history of Fairyland before that argument, and then it still wasn't really a great place to be then. No, but it because was at least maybe prettier looking. Yeah, and like just a slightly nicer vibe, perhaps. Uh, the yeah. point is, it's never been a fairy tale. Well. It's never been the uh, the nice kind of fairy tale. Yes, it's more like fairies the have always been horrid. Yeah, <laughs> little bits we like. What do we like? Wild what speculation like? corner. Yes. <laughs> so Fiegels die and go back. No, don't die. They're just going back to the land of the living. Yeah. Do we have a Fiegel psychopomp? Do we have a death equivalent but a living? I feel like the fact that they're being shuttled between their world and this world where they're just so good and in theory ping, kind of ping-ponging back and forward mm-hmm. is because death wants nothing to do with those fuckers. <laughs> so we reckon they just close eyes, wake up, new world. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Because otherwise they'll end up following death back and Albert has to get them out of the porridge. And That's true. I was wondering if death would even uh, accommodate a different psychopomp. Is it a psychopomp if you're accompanying someone back to the land of the living? Does it work both ways? No, I think it only goes one way. Okay. So one way well, usually system. does. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I've heard. Yeah. Oh, we didn't see Windapoons get ushered back in, did we? Even though well, no, that was a bit didn't... of a special circumstance. But Red Shoe, as far as we know, didn't get kicked back in, did he? No, he just kept going. Yeah. Sheer force of will. Mm. All right. All right. If there is one, it'll just be a fegal. Just a normal fegal. Yeah. Just like, yeah, I'm doing this job this month. Yeah. yeah, they take turns <laughs> yeah, psycho-pumping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, good. Wild speculation over. Cool. 
Uh, Tiffany does some speculation. She thinks that there should be a word that sounds like a noise, the noise a thing would make if that thing made a noise, even though actually it doesn't, but would if it did. Yep. We've definitely had this conversation before and I can't remember when. Nope. We're doing really well on the callbacks to old episodes today. Mm-hmm. <sighs> We've talked Keep- for so many hours as the thing, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> on and off podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is a cool concept and I enjoy it as well. I like this concept. Do you have any ideas for that sort of word? Oh, um, so what have we got in the book? It's glisten, gleam. Yeah. All the gliz. <laughs> all the gliz. All the gliz. Let me have a quick think. Definitely some. Yeah, we have glint as well. Coruscate is coming Coruscate. into my word, right? It's coming into yes. my head. That's from a different book. That is from a different book. I do not remember which book it's from now. Yeah, because- okay. I'm I'm just glad I'm not going mad. Okay, that's fine then. No. <laughs> there is conversation about the word coruscate. <laughs> no, I can't think of it. Crumble to me fits into that. Crumbles that. Almost but not quite the same thing as I always feel like the word slip sounds like Slipping. the noise a uh, silk slip makes as you Ooh. put it on. Nice, yeah. And it doesn't make a noise, so it does fit. Yes. Good. There we go. You can have slip. Slip. Yes, good. Slip and crumble. Lawyers at large. <laughs> Lawyers at large. <laughs> Attorneys at law. Thank you. <laughs> I try. You absolutely did try, Francine. I cannot oh. say that you did not try. Thank you, Joanna. Um, we have setting the clock and the aching nature of timekeeping. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so the big old clock in the farmhouse is set once a week, which is her father goes to the market in Creel Springs. He makes a note of the position of the hands on the big clock there. And then when he gets home, he puts the hands on their clock into the same position. Yep. <laughs> which is how you get countryside time, of course. <laughs> yep. Um, but they all take their time from the sun anyway. And you sent me a really interesting thing earlier about turf sundials. Oh, yeah. So that was when I was trying to look up like shepherding folklore and stuff. And basically, there were just some cool ways that shepherds used to tell the times, just putting sticks in turfs in various formations. And like there were portable sundials and things apparently for a little while. And yeah, but the, the turf sundials in particular were going for until reasonably recently. I'm guessing until wristwatches were super reliable. And I guess able to survive sheep. Yeah. And then, yeah, then they said, if not, you just reckon from whereabouts the sun was. Yeah, I suppose you, if you're doing that sort of job, you only need to have a pretty good fixed knowing where north, south, east and west are. Yeah. Oh, Tiffany as well. Um, I suppose that's a little bit of a through line in the book, isn't it? So you said about they they worked out where the, what time it was by where the sun was. And then when she's in fairyland, one of the first things she notices is there's no sun to be seen she can't work out what time it is because time doesn't work there and when she's going through this frustrating fear-filled moment at the end she has the shadows but there's no sun to create the shadows oh yeah there's a phenomenon right on the equator that at exactly noon at a certain i guess on the equinoxes yeah um solstices yeah for a little bit for a few minutes there are no shadows because the sun is directly overhead and apparently yeah. it looks very odd, like something's not rendered properly and everything looks very liminal and just weird. I want to go experience like to that, that yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. I like Speaking such... of time. Mm, yeah. Uh, when uh, Tiffany accepts Rob's proposal, <laughs> uh, she... that whole bit was awkward. <laughs> <laughs> it was very sweet where they're sort of awkwardly 
you know, one of them's washed and there's picked a nice bunch of flowers for her. Yeah. And they don't realise that, you know, fecal and human <laughs> biology are obviously very different. It's like, she's a bit young to be having babies. Like, yeah, she's like nine. <laughs> I like how incredibly not creepy it is. Yeah, it genuinely is. Yeah. <laughs> and Tiffany doesn't feel like it's like that. She's just like, right, okay, how can I not make this awkward? And I and think Theon she- must know when he's trying to catch her out a bit here. Yeah, that, that's, I think, the moment of rivalry I was talking yeah. about a bit earlier, where Fionn's got this kind of smug, well, how are you going to get out of this one? Because yeah. if not, I sort of win. <laughs> um, so when Tiffany sets the date for her wedding with Rob, she says, at the end of the world is a great big mountain of granite rock a mile high. Every year a tiny bird flies all the way to the rock and wipes its beak on it. When the little bird has worn the mountain down to the size of a grain of sand, that's when she'll marry him. And I've heard that reference like as a story within stories before, the mountain at the end mm. of the world and the bird that visits yep. it once uh, however long. Yeah, definitely. So I had a look at where it's from. Uh, origin seems to be The Shepherd's Poi by Brothers Grimm. Nice. Relevant. Um, which uh, is a, a king asks a shepherd's boy three questions and if the boy can answer them properly, then the boy gets to be the prince and inherit everything from the king. Sure. Normal There's way like, to run a country. At least in the Grimm's version, there's absolutely no context for like why this this arrangement has come about. There's no build up. It's just this. So we asked the boy. Many... We don't need. <laughs> so he asked the boy these big, unanswerable questions like how many drops of water are in the ocean, how many stars are in the sky, um, and the third one is how long is eternity. And so the boy describes the bird flying to the mountain of diamond at the end of the world, and and says when the diamond is worn down to a single grain. Uh, that the first second of eternity will be over. Oh, very cool. Um, so it's um, ATU index 922. Uh, the shepherd substituting for the clergyman answers the king's questions. This is the story type. There are lots of versions from various different folklores. There's English, Irish, and Scots versions. Um, there's things with like two boys pretending to be each other in classrooms and answering questions like this and tricking oh. teachers. But sure. <laughs> um, they're always these kind of big abstract questions. Uh, and um, it's always three questions, obviously. Yeah. But the only version of the story I found with the bird sharpening its beak is The Shepherd's Boy, which it has its origin as Brothers Grimm. I'm assuming because it's Brothers Grimm, it goes back in Germanic folklore probably quite a lot further. Yeah, just harder to Google in German. And also <laughs> may not be Germanic based on so a lot of the research I've done about Brothers Grimm in the past. Mm. Have we, did it not come up in Reaper Man or something as well? It's definitely come up in Pratchett before. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's it's something I've heard in a lot of places. It's it's referenced as like a yeah. shorthand for eternity. That's literally what it is. Yeah. Huh. I want. Yeah, it would be interesting to know where it first first came up. Yeah. Grim. Grim. The brothers Grim took their stuff from other sources, didn't they? Like yeah, their their, yeah. Their whole thing was collecting uh, folklore of German yeah. origin, but they often ended up with things like French shit in there. <laughs> They weren't very good about checking their sources. <laughs> Probably a bit harder then. <laughs> true, true. Um, anyway, yeah, sorry. Uh, Thunderbolt yeah. Iron. Oh, yeah. So um, in the book, Tiffany um, brings a frying pan, obviously, as the, mm-hmm. as the correct weapon to go into fairyland with. But the, the Fiegel's like, shouldn't you have a sword of Thunderbolt Iron? And I was like, did. Yes, he did. Exactly. I was like, Thunderbolt Iron. That's a word I know. Um, and 
obviously it's referenced in Weird Sisters and that actually, mm-hmm. and in I'm guessing Lords and Ladies. Yeah, maybe probably. it's the meteorite iron anyway, basically. Yeah. So yeah, Pratchett made his own sword, as I'm sure we all know by now. Um, he gathered raw iron ore from a field and then also lobbed, as Rob Wilkins put it, pieces of the uh, Sitcoat Allen meteorite to play the part of Thunderbolt Iron, which folklore insists is highly magical. Um, and then I was like, Thunderbolt Iron, though, like as a term, I'm not mm. sure that's how it's usually put. And yeah, no, uh, Pratchett is named as the trope namer in TV tropes. So Discworld's Thunderbolt Iron is strongly magnetized even more useful than normal iron for keeping away elves, etc. Um, but yeah, and all of the stuff about meteorite iron on TV tropes is under Thunderbolt Iron, and Pratchett just came up with the coolest name for it. Nice. Ten out of ten. Well done, Pratchett. Pratchett. <laughs> Speaking of names for things. Teasers. Cheeses. <laughs> Cheeses. Uh, yeah, I just, very much genuine little bit. I liked, there are faraway cheeses with strange-sounding names. Cheeses like Treble Woodley, Wainy Tasty, Old Arg, Red Runny, and the legendary Lanka Blue, which had to be nailed to the table to stop it attacking other cheeses. Yeah, I, some cheese names are pretty fucking weird. I can't think of many. Old Arg, probably something to do with Yarg. Yarg is a cheese, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I want cheese. I'm peckish. Wookie hole. Wookie hole cheddar. Mm-mm. Normal and good. Shepherding superstitions. Oh, no, it's me again. Okay. <laughs> right, I'm going to bring up my notes in front of me now. Tell me about shepherding superstitions. I will. So this bit, I think, is brought up a lot when we're discussing the chalk and Pratchett lore in general, is that granny aching was wrapped in wool blanket, tough of raw wool put into it, as we mentioned earlier. Because, I don't know, it's a very sticky bit of folklore. Also, in the part of the world where that was tradition, um, the shepherd would often be carried to their grave on hurdles. You know, the bit of movable fence you use specifically for sheep? Oh, cool. cool. As far as I see it, there are kind of a couple of ways you can look at shepherd folklore shepherd superstition and the first one of those is like shepherd as a metaphor which i think there's quite a lot of in this book it's kind of the power it's a very powerful simple imagery it's guiding a flock it's doing so for little reward because it is your duty and you love Mm -hmm. it or you can't imagine doing anything else or you were born into it or a mixture of all of those and in a, in a context like this, I like it. I like it very much as the symbology. And I think granny aching is great. But as you know, especially as, yeah, turns out witches and shepherds have a have a lot in common in definitely in Pratchett's canon. Um, mm-hmm. I find it a bit interesting or possibly annoying that when it's used in more religious contexts or maybe slightly more preachy contexts, because it's kind of a part of a, historically incredibly undervalued labor force and portrayed like they do everything from duty and it does therefore it doesn't matter they have little reward and it reminded me very much of our discussions about like the nhs workers and the like clap for the nhs they're heroes so they don't need paying properly yeah (laughs) it's oh it's such a noble profession it's a calling it's a yeah (laughs) so i don't know Reading reading the book on shepherding that I was at, WH Hudson's one, um, mm-hmm. The Shepherd's Life, is pretty depressing, actually, more so than I thought, because there's a lot of details about the the kind of uprisings following some of the automated uh, farming equipment. So this would have actually been super relevant during Reaper Man, because there was a lot of the thrashing machines getting destroyed and things in there. Um, yeah. But all of the stuff surrounding that before and after it and just 
there were a lot there were a lot of starving families of laborers even before that came in and then it got worse afterwards and there was like incredibly harsh punishments for sheep stealing as we've seen in this book like you mm-hmm. get hanged for stealing a sheep because your family's starving and a lot of the justices seemed to take some fucking perverse joy in it and yeah that kind of sucked and was very depressing to read about so i veered into happier territory and just looked up a few fun little customs and folklore bits there's a really interesting bit of nuance though i hadn't thought about it like that at all it's yeah i like how it's portrayed here but i think it would be very annoying in the hands of another author absolutely yeah Granny Aching and Tiffany. We get to see it from Tiffany's perspective, which is important, I think, because quite often you don't see it from the shepherd's perspective. And also Tiffany is not always very noble about it. She finds it frustrating sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. And it's interesting, it's a woman, actually. Granny, I didn't really think about that, but Granny Aching being a woman, you don't often get the the, this trope of shepherd being a woman. No, you don't. Even though it seems like quite a nurturing maternal role. Hmm. You get shepherdesses in silly dresses. Shepherdesses, silly dresses. There's a poem there somewhere. Uh, (laughs) There's already one about Bo Peep. Anyway, sorry. Shepherdesses, um, silly dresses, uh, something about the curled tresses. All right, we're not improvising poetry on the podcast, Francine. Tell me about superstitions. So just a fun, fun little small collection of bits that I found and I liked. I like that steel ice burn. I've done yes. a version of Rosebud in June, which I also know is the sheep's hearing song. Um, some of the lyrics go, It's a rosebud in June and the violet's in full bloom and the small birds are singing love songs on each spray. We'll pipe and we'll sing love. We'll dance in a ring love when each lad takes his lass all on the green grass and it's old to plough where the fat oxen graze low and the lads and the lasses do sheep shearing go. A little, little bit of innuendo in there, I reckon. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Just, not even innuendo really, is it? <laughs> It's a lovely song, and I'll link to Steel Ice Band's version of that. There were some little bits that I found. So from the first edition, actually, I think, of the Folklore Society Journal, somebody was looking for any folk beliefs and primitive appliances, love that, primitive appliances, still lingering amongst the shepherds. Most of the shepherds are natives of the district, nearly all descend from a long line of shepherds, and so maybe expected still to hold on to ancient customs and ideas. The, the author did know that it, he found quite a lot of difficulty getting those who still believe in the charms and the magic to own up and to talk about the practices. So this is in 1909, and he said, I found here, as elsewhere, a great change is taking place, and it's probable that not many years hence, there will no longer be men to be found to use the tallies and the sundials described below. No, oh, interesting. Yeah. We are talking quite a lot about the chalk being made up of all sea creatures and that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from the same folklore journal. I may note here that near Whitstable, the name Crampstone, and cramp was an affliction, it seems, that a lot of shepherds struggled with, I'm guessing, because partly malnutrition, it's a very active job. Um, yeah. But there were a lot of charms against cramps specifically. Interesting. Is given to the fossils, fossil shark's teeth with a limey concretion near the base, which... Uh, to be found in the beds of the clay and oh wow, and talk, yeah, and they're an amulet against cramp. Pretty cool. So I like that as a. I I don't think we have any sharks teeth around here, but now I want to kind of look up and find it because we do we get the odd. We're not proper chalk country here, but we've got clay chalk and flint in some amounts. Yeah, um, I want to find a shark's tooth now. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> wear that once a month. Absolutely. So the book that I 
spent most of the time reading and then didn't actually draw much from this episode for uh, because there's just a lot about life in rural Wiltshire, which is very interesting but not very relevant. The author gained most of his information from interviewing a shepherd in his 70s or 80s at the time. And he was a retired shepherd, but he could remember talking to shepherds who had been old men when he was a young man and things like that. He was so I love those connections anyway. Be like, and when I went, when I was a young boy, I spoke to the old man, and there's like a hundred and fifty year fucking folklore span there. I was like, wow. I thought you might like the Association of Starlings and Sheep. So apparently, starlings love hanging around near sheep fields. Oh, right. um, and I'm not sure exactly why, but apparently, or rather the author theorizes, because starlings are kind of mimic birds in certain ways, but they're not as good at it as like the mockingbird. So they they kind of give like an odd, slightly harsh imitation of whatever they're imitating. But there was this weird metallic cry that he kept hearing from them. And he was theorizing that they were trying to copy the sheep bells, oh. which I thought was rather lovely. Yeah. And then he went, he went on to describe the sheep bells and their importance. And he was saying that the idea of sheep bells, what, what you'll generally read about them, is that they're there so you can tell which way the ship, which way the herd is going. And if there's a sudden clamoring, you'll know there's something wrong. So the sheep are running away, being attacked, whatever. However, he said that he's not entirely sure that was the main motivation and that the shepherds just really fucking loved the bells. And so like they would spend a lot of money on getting like more bells than they could really afford for their sheep. And they said that they'd get all different sizes and different types of metals that it would make a kind of music as the herd was going along. Oh, that's so lovely. And they were saying, yeah, we, see, we think the sheep like it too, which is actually plausible to me because I don't know if you've ever seen livestock react to music. They're quite often very into it. Um, mm. And a lot of places, uh, shepherds and goat herds are traditionally equipped with a little musical instrument to entertain both them and the livestock. Fair. Um, like fl- flute, I think, is the traditional one. That sounds right. Shepherd's flute? Yeah, sure. Could be. Maybe. Sounds like a thing. <laughs> but yeah, I loved that. Um, and then, so the uh, the bit we were saying, and I think it made it into the episode when we were talking about don't plant anything before May. Yeah. Because of the frost. I'm wrong. Shearing, in fact, only begins in June to avoid any dangerous deterioration in the weather. So oh. we've got to be careful with our delicate plants. And Shear- our sheep. Exa- and our sheep. <laughs> Shear your sheep in May. Shear them all away. A rhyme warned. And you know, I like a little advice rhyme. We do love an advice rhyme here on the True Shall Make Key Fred. Yeah. Lambing, obviously, was the other really important landmark in the mm-hmm. shepherd calendar. And traditions, unsurprisingly, grew up around them. If the first lamb was seen facing you, it meant good luck. If facing away from you, the opposite. It was tradition in Warwickshire villages for the shepherds to have a pancake when the first lamb was born. And that's still oh. still done in some farming families today, apparently. I is that, that linked to the fact that I suppose lambing season is probably beginning around Shrove Tuesday, around the beginning of Lent? Oh, it definitely is. Yes. So probably, possibly. Yeah. Good point. I assume there's some sort of connection there. Maybe like instead of starting Lent when Lent officially starts, they would start when the lambing starts. Yeah, maybe. Oh, I might try and look into that. And the last, oh no, I can't finish. Well, no, I can. I'm finishing a slightly grim, grim one, but quite cool. Uh, the shepherd's reliance on his crook was surpassed only by that upon his dog. And not only in droving the sheep did the crook and the dog combine to aid the shepherd, they could also provide him with this supper. I've heard accounts from old Wiltshire shepherds that on finding a hare crouched in its form, the shepherd would bid his dog bide. Stay. He would then walk in a wide circle, coming up behind the hare, whose gaze was still firmly fixed on the dog sitting some yards in front. And then the shepherd would strike the hare a blow on the back of the neck with his crook. Let's say hunt. That's quite just quite an interesting way of hunting a hare. I thought. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
And I got another load of random shit here, but I think that's enough. That was a good amount of superstitious facts. I will link to the sources if anybody wants to read more about shepherding in general. Yeah, cool. I mean, to go into what I was going to talk about, something I really love about these older superstitions, especially that come from a line of a particular work, like say shepherding, Mm. is that no matter how sort of strange or different they might seem to us now, there's almost always some actually very logical basis to it. Mm. So there are things like, so potentially the pancake thing could have something to do with Lent and Shrove Tuesday. Um, but there's so many things where it seems like a superstition, it seems dumb, but there's almost always there's a reason. Yeah, And I think that really links nicely into something this book deals with, which is Tiffany learning how magic is done and having to decide whether it's still magic or not. Yes. Because when we meet her at the start of the book, she's excited to go to a magical school on a unicorn and become a witch. Oh. <laughs> and then she learns, well, she is a witch, at least according to the fecal. She's the hag of the hills now that her grandmother's gone. And so she's got to learn how to do that very quickly. And then she's sort of like, well, I don't know any magic. And then she's, just, it's very, you know, how ah, the real magic is the friends we made along the way, except the friends are... <laughs> the friends are arcane knowledge. <laughs> basically knowledge miscellaneous knowledge (laughs) i think the place where we see her confronting it the most head-on is uh when we were talking about uh her learning that the fegals take the tobacco yes yeah because for her that was this sort of last little bit of well that the people place tobacco there as an offering and it goes and i didn't she doesn't logically think that granny is still somehow wandering around the hills looking after sheep no. But she hadn't found anything else to fill that in and it and so there was a bit of a spark of that for her. Yeah. So learning the real truth of it is obviously a very difficult thing to go through emotionally. We talked about the fact it's like another bit of grief for her, but then this acceptance of it of all right, well, there's still a magic to it. There's there's an arrangement. Yeah. The sheep are looked after. Um the fegals take the tobacco and look after the sheep in Granny's honour, and people leave the tobacco and ask for Granny's help in her honour. Yeah. Um it all worked, even if it wasn't magic, but it took Granny away. That's what she has to deal with. Yeah. There's slightly less Granny in the world. And alongside that, she has to deal with, she's not going to go and tell all the other shepherds and stuff. Like, guys, no, there's just some weird little blue dudes. Like, keep doing it. Leave the tobacco because they'll keep an eye on the sheep. She's not going to tell them that. No. And not just because she'd sound insane and be burned at the stake as a witch. Um, but because why take away the magic for everybody else? Yeah, and it's nice that that's already instilled in her. Yeah, or not even instilled it. Just it's it's in her already, isn't it? She's not. Well, <laughs> she's not the kind of kid I was about to say who immediately needs to like spoil everything for everybody else. Well, that did remind me that when <laughs> when she found Roland in that dream, she was like, "Don't you have any sense? Why are you eating?" I was like, five minutes ago, mate." Yeah, you were about <laughs> to eat the fucking porridge. Well, it was the thing we talked about last week. That sort of well, everyone knows this yeah. thing that I learned a minute ago. <laughs> exactly <laughs> she finds the way into the land and then all the fegals are kind of telling her well done afterwards no we didn't think you'd see the green sweet so we used your eyes and you use your head that's what a real hag does the magic king's just there for the advertising so she's mm. gone from learning you know the magic maybe takes a very different shape and again it's small blue and the friends we made along the way she she has it in her that there's no need to tell everyone else that to actually it benefits her to have this as a form of advertising if yeah. she wants to make her way as a witch and find her place as a witch, she has to know what the magic is that she can do. Yeah. It must be odd 
to be coming to terms with that at the same time where you're going to face a very outwardly magical thing, though. Yeah. Like, a magic with a capital M. <laughs> all the things she thought was magic are actually just people being very clever and then now she's got to go to actual fairyland to fight the yeah. Queen of the Fairies <laughs> and the dream monsters. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of contradictions taken for one little girl. <laughs> but it's just, it's something Pratchett does, it's something Pratchett does very well. Is Here we go, it's all very calm and sensible and ridiculous. <laughs> also, by the way, guys, in case I forgot to mention, we are on a turtle. Yes, by the way, remember the turtle. All the way down. And Mopey the whale. <laughs> Going round and round in circles. Super. And as she comes to terms with it throughout the section, we see all these different granny aching interludes. So she remembers the funeral. She remembers finding her. She remembers the finding the China Shepherdess and giving it to her. Mm. And she remembers the story you mentioned earlier, the peddler. Um, and granny stops the peddler from beating his donkey with her two dogs. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Tiffany said sort of a couple of times, like in the early section, she said to Miss Tick, I think that she was a witch. Um, yes. Because what she did was very witch-shaped, even if it, she wasn't a witch with a pointy hat. Yeah. And the, the Feagles all very much acknowledge that, the Hag of the Hills. Exactly. She was a hag, yeah. even if she wasn't a witch. Yeah. Same thing. <laughs> and at the end of the Peddler story, which is right at the end of the section... Uh, Granny explains to Tiffany, them as can do has to do for them as can't, and someone has to speak up for them as has no voices. Mm. Which is a very Granny Weatherwax-shaped sentiment as well, if a less angry and bitter version of a Granny Weatherwax-shaped sentiment. Yes, I feel like Granny would add a people who have no sense to do it kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. It's less I can't be having with this and more someone should be having with this. Yes. Yeah. And it, it is just a, a wonderful bit of advice generally isn't it it's a, it's a wonderful ethical pillar i think yeah it's 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 a sentiment that's carried it's one of the famous famous discworld quotes and it's a mm. sentiment that's carried through a lot of Pratchett's work i think it's got it's a cousin to uh granny weatherwax and carpe jugulum evil begins when you treat people yeah. as things it does make me wonder sometimes how people with extremely individualistic politics let's say yeah. can still count themselves among Terry Pratchett fans like with with just such clear flags like this like a, I'd have thought that would enrage me if I were a, a fuck everybody else kind of person <laughs> no I don't understand it but they are out there they do walk among yeah. us they do they do we've had we've had one or two emails from them not very many but yeah, so I think it's a beautiful theme to run through this book and especially this section is that as Tiffany kind of has to grow into her version of being whatever a hag is mm. and being whatever a witch is, as opposed to the witch she imagined herself being. I mean, I'm pretty sure a hag is just a synonym for witch. It is, but I think the whole thing with the Feagles calling Granny Aching the hag, even if she wasn't officially a witch with a pointy hat. Mm. I'm not saying that they're two different things. I'm saying that maybe hag is like a flavour of witch or it's like a subset. Maybe. I don't think it's established as officially that as a rule in the book, but I think it's one of those things like if you're a hag, you're a witch, but all not all witches are hags. Does that make sense? I guess I really do. I really do just think that hag is like the Fiegel's dialect for no, witch. No, I but, do think the hag yeah. is just Fiegel's <laughs> yeah. dialect for witch. I'm saying thematically there can be a bit more to it where Tiffany's okay. figuring out how to be a witch through mm. Fiegel, a Fiegel lens at this point. Yes, that's true. So yeah, she's yeah. figuring the, out specifically hagging. The, Hanging. <laughs> the found the foundational knowledge looks different for her than for most witches. 
and uh, and again the, the 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 geology the foundation yes yeah. the actual foundation is different yeah well, that sets us up nicely for next week. But before we get there, Francine, have you got an obscure reference for Neil for me? Yeah. Uh, so at one point they're talking about how at the wake of the Kelder, they will dance the 512 some reels. That sounds difficult. It does, doesn't it? And so like the, um, yeah, what's it, the eight some reel yeah. and things Twelve like that. Our, our Scottish dancers. Um and I was like, 512. So I just I just Googled that quickly because I was like, some someone has looked this up for me. And yes, uh, somebody who does cool Scottish dances is also a Pratchett fan and has written a blog post about it. And I'll link to that. But my question answered, it would require 64 couples on each side of the set. Excellent. And she can't imagine that happening in real, R-E-E-L, uh. bracket, sorry, <laughs> life, where for starters. Um, so I imagine quite a fegal only kind of dance. <laughs> that would re- require an awfully large Kaylee. Yes. I know I'm not saying that right. <laughs> okay, and that's it. Amazing. Okay, that's everything that we are going to say about part two of the We Free Men. We could probably say a lot more, let's be realistic. We will be back next week where we're covering the last third of the book, chapter 10 through to the end of the book. Until next time, dear listeners, you can follow us on Instagram at the True Show Make Ye Fret, on Twitter at Make Ye Fret Pod, on Facebook at the True Show Make Ye Fret. Join our subreddit community r slash ttsmyf. Email us your thoughts, queries, castles, snacks, and Kayleys, the True Show Make Ye Fret Pod at gmail.com. And if you want to support us financially, go to patreon.com forward slash the True Show Make Ye Fret. We can exchange your hard earned pennies for all sorts of bonus nonsense don't forget uh there'll be ticket links available as soon as we've got them up to catch us live with mark burrows or mark burrows live and us bimbling around the edges uh don't forget to rate and review us that was the other thing I was <laughs> please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast because it helps other people find us in the algorithms the algorithms them. they are deep dark scary algorithms deep dark scary algorithms weirdly rendered at the sides I'm making the algorithms fairyland. Okay, yeah, cool. Uh, we're lost in fairyland, so rate, review, and subscribe, oh. and all that shit. <laughs> Until next time, dear listener, don't let us detain you. When the train left Edinburgh, <laughs> <laughs> the passengers' hearts were light and felt no sorrow. But Boreas blew a terrific gale, which made their hearts for to quail. And I always think any poet that adds for to in something is fantastic. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I'm with you. And many of the passengers with fear did say, I hope God will send us safe across the Bridge of Tay. Well, sorry to tell you, listeners. <laughs> Spoilers. Spoilers, Francine. <laughs>